So let's begin our lightning round. You've been very uh, patient as I've uh, forced you, compelled you to uh, help us through the chronology of, of many of the uh, important points of, of your life. Now it's time for the lightning round where we're going to just ask you to tell some stories or answer some questions that our listeners have sent in. Okay. So we've heard that you're quite a storyteller. We've seen that now, but uh, Christine has asked us for you to share with us the chicken story. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, this is a sister-in-law's sister who uh, she and her husband lived in Livermore at the moment when out on the outskirts it was basically rural, uh, Livermore, California. And uh, some good neighbor gave their children three or four chicken eggs and the children wanted to brood them and raise them so their dad helped them fix up a, a little box to keep warm and they hatched the eggs out. So they had a hen, uh, some hens and a few hens and a rooster and and they uh, I, I can't remember how, when they grew to maturity, how they got out of their pen, but quite soon those chickens had free run of the, the little farm there. It, wasn't, it was kind of a suburban farm. It, and the, it turned out they were uh, game fowl. They were those fighting fowl, the, the kind that grow spurs and fight. And... Uh, and that meant that even though they were out in the free, they uh, they uh, survived skunks, raccoons, and so on. They were they were tough, and they fought off predators. And they multiplied until they had uh, thirty or forty of them, and going around the place. And they would do what chickens do on porches and walks and so on. And and uh, were a general nuisance, and the the mother of the family uh, was, became very impatient with them and pleaded with her husband to do something about them and the, the kids and so on, and nothing happened. And one day, as she was driving home up their, the lane to their house, uh, one of the gamecocks confronted her car and wanted to fight it. And it wouldn't move. And she didn't have the gumption to run over it, so it, but it made her angry. So she finally was able to get her car back to a parking place. But she had her mind made up. She, uh, she phoned a neighbor and borrowed a twenty-two rifle. And then she went to the store and bought a box of shells and came back and went out on the back porch and started shooting chickens. And she must have shot 15 or 20, 25 of them. But at any rate, the kids, uh, when the father, the, he was a dentist, came home that evening, the kids were clamoring, mothers killed all the chickens. Well, she hadn't killed them all, but she had demolished quite a few of them. And, and uh, there were chicken carcasses all over the backyard, and there were even some over in the neighbor's place. But the poor neighbor came up wringing his hands, and uh, uh, I can't remember. It, it seems to me that he had in, uh, in mind that it was somehow 
that he was to blame, and this was retaliation against him. At any rate, he had uh, uh, he had had to kill some of the wounded ones and was complaining. But but if you knew this good woman, my sister-in-law's sister, she's a, a sweet, mild-mannered, churchly, duteous wife, church member, and so on. Who went postal? Who went postal? But now the. Uh, there's more, another good story about the Relief Society in rural places. The the uh, the sister-in-law I spoke of. Uh, uh, she and her husband lived next door to a a. Uh, I guess it was two doors up from a woman who had a a billy goat, had goats, and she one of them was, and they had were generally in the backyard, but they also could get out front. Uh, and the billy goat was belligerent, it had horns and all. And one day when the Relief Society visiting sisters came to call on the woman and came time to go home, they tried to open the front door and the billy goat was on the porch and wouldn't let them go out. So that good sister went to the closet, took out a thirty thirty, and went out and killed the billy goat. Uh, the rural sisters know how to handle emergencies, but that's another testimony to what Relief Society will do to people. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Those are good stories. Um, one of the most touching parts in your book for me was your discussion about Eugene England. And um, t today, most people don't have the benefit of ever knowing Gene because he's passed on. You knew him. Talk a couple minutes about what, what he meant to you, what he was like, if you have a story that encapsulates what he was like to you, and any of those moments or thoughts you expressed in, in your book about the end, the end of his life. I know it's a big topic, but... Yeah, Gene. Well, Gene was quiet, and he, he just exuded tranquility in a sense. You felt comfortable around Gene, uh, very accepted, that he had a Christian acceptance of, of all people, and the, he was untroubled by uh, lack of faith, uh, he was untroubled by sinners, he was just uh, acceptive of them. And the I felt that very much, that uh, I particularly had a, originally a pretty strong sense of guilt for not being a faithful Mormon, but in Gene's presence it, it didn't count, it wasn't anything that he uh, would worry about. Uh, the, he, uh, quite a few years at BYU, he uh, conducted, taught Mormon literature classes, and he would use one of my novels or book of short stories, and he would typically have me come down and speak to classes once a year, uh, a class or two on the backslider, and uh, quite a few students uh, uh, later years, I'd meet people who were introduced to, to, they would say, to serious Mormon fiction by Gene in that class. Uh, but uh, 
Gene's students, uh, almost invariably, somebody would wonder why I was had so much graphic sex or violence in my writing, and and uh, I'd make some defense of it. But uh, it, what always struck me with Gene is that didn't trouble him. That the existence of that in my writing. Uh, Gene esteemed my writing to be Mormon writing. And I was always impressed with that. Because it's good taste. Yeah, well, at any rate, the, another thing that struck me about Gene is he was the quintessential liberal Mormon. Now, my definition of the, of the essential liberal Mormon isn't myself. I'm a peripheral liberal Mormon. But a liberal Mormon is a person who, who believes, deeply believes, both that, that, that reason with all its apparatuses like science and the faith, the Mormon faith, can be reconciled. Gene believed that. Uh, he believed it implicitly. Uh, and I marveled at it, that he could get, when, uh, in the 90s, uh, when we were the had our closest friendship, the late 80s and the 90s, that I, I marveled as I could see that Gene was sincere in that position. Uh, both uh, he believed uh, and in the, the prophet, the church, he, uh, but he also, that's why I found a dialogue, is that he thought the role of dialogue uh, was a natural. Uh, slowly through the 90s, Gene became disillusioned in that. Maybe I shouldn't say slowly. I think the treatment he received following that impetuous speech he gave, and that was uncharacteristic of Gene to get up and, and uh, angrily denounce the committee on for strengthening the members. He assuming that it was got up without the knowledge of the brethren in, uh, at the highest levels by functionaries. And then he was publicly rebuked, uh, if not explicitly rebuked, at least the church declared that that committee happened to have a couple of apostles on it. So it wasn't uh, uh, just a group of functionaries doing it. Uh, it was, in, I think, in the... Uh, the aftermath of that, that Gene was, what you want to say, mauled by Elder McConkie, uh, the, who uh, uh, wrote Gene a letter which became public while Gene was in England and before Gene ever saw it. The, a letter basically saying to Gene that, uh, that when you and I disagree on a a point of doctrine, I'm the one who, it's your place to ask, to defer to me, not vice versa. Uh, which shows Elder McConkie in his quintessential arrogance. He's the most classic example of the, of the abuser of the priesthood uh, that I know of. And uh, the, but, uh, that was only, I think, a, a phenomenon on the way of Gene being advised heavily to retire when he didn't want to. He was 
old enough to retire, 65 or somewhere along in that range, and he was he was urged to retire, and so he did, and he went down to over to the Utah Valley State College campus and tried to set up a a program in Mormon studies there, and felt like he was having success, but. Uh, he came to feel at the end that that uh, church opposition was official church opposition was stopping him there, and as people may know, as as toward the end of his life, uh, Gene died in two thousand one. Uh, Gene was actually suffering from a a large cyst growing in his one of his frontal lobes, uh, and he didn't know that, but he was su- began suffering a lot from depression. And he attributed the depression to the lack of success he was having in getting his program going at at Utah Valley State College, which he felt was owing to church opposition. Uh, just a month or so before his collapse and operation on the the cyst in his brain, uh, about six months before he died. Uh, Gene was here at this apartment. He and Charlotte and their daughter had uh, lunch with Althea and me. And after lunch, Gene and I walked down the a nature trail that's over here, a uh, uh, band of trees in a, with a creek running through it. And as we, he and I walked down there, he uh, said that he was very depressed. And for the first time in his life, he no longer relished work. Uh, and then he said that he said that almost these are almost his words. I wrote it in a diary and entered it into my autobiography. The diary having been written the day after he said it, something like he said, "You know, I I have a testimony, uh, and I believe in the church and I believe in the apostles, but." Uh, what do I do when apostles have treated me like S? He used the S word. The only time, and he said it bitterly, the only time I've ever heard him, ever had heard him, say a word that you wouldn't normally be able to use over a pulpit. Uh, I don't know which apostles he meant, but I'm certain he could have easily meant McConkie. And in my judgment, he had been treated that way. Uh, I suppose persons of the opposite point of view could say, well, he invited it. The liberal Mormon invites that kind of stern treatment. Uh, I, I, uh, I think it takes something for a liberal Mormon to to endure to the end, uh, that it can you can easily, as a liberal Mormon, realize that that the church doesn't welcome the liberal Mormon. It ought to. It's too bad it can't, but it can't. It doesn't. Uh, I. Uh, It's too bad if it takes a liberal Mormon of my nature to stay with it. I can stay with it because 
uh, I didn't expect anything different in the first place. And, uh, and I can't be disillusioned. The, what the official church does isn't my Mormonism anyway. But, uh, but it's too bad that it has to be on the shoulders of people like me. I hope it isn't. You didn't want that kind of pessimistic conclusion. Uh, was that the last time you saw Gene? No, I saw him... Uh, the next six months? Uh, in uh, April or May, May, I saw him, and uh, he was ambulating and rehabilitating, but by when we returned to the Sunstone Symposium, he was uh, dying. And Althea and I went to the house, uh, Charlotte's house, and Charlotte told me in private, she said, I can't let him go. Uh, she says, friends really tell me I'm keeping him alive, useless, uh, and he's suffering uselessly because I, I won't, my will won't let him go. And that tells you something about how Charlotte felt about him. But be that as it may, uh, she took us into the bedroom. She slept there with him at night, and somebody stayed with him. If if not she, then one of the daughters. And I leaned over and I, I kissed his bald head. He'd been sh still shaved from ther uh, some kind of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, and told him I loved him. Told him to put a good word in with God when he got there. And on the other side, and he. Uh, he opened his eyes and looked at me and Althea, and then he closed them. And uh, I never saw him again, and, uh, and sometime in September he was dead. We were back down to his, that tribute they held for him at the Provo Tabernacle, which was a lovely event. So another hero of yours. Correct. Um, I knew that that tribute would largely emphasize Gene's orthodox side, and it did. So I, I pitched my remarks to emphasizing his liberal side. Have you published those anywhere? I think so. I didn't. I think Dialogue okay. did a an issue on Gene, and they're in there. They're in there. Okay. Um, real quickly, there are a lot of um, people leaving the church. I mean, not. Percentage-wise, but just in number-wise, uh, I'd say hundreds to even thousands a year over historical issues, disappointment, disillusionment, all sorts of reasons. You've made the case before. When I went through my crisis of faith, I came into this living room, and I, I talked to you about it, and you encouraged me to consider staying. Yeah. If you were going to look, uh, look some young people in the eyes who have left or have considered leaving and, and wanted to make the case for why they might consider staying. What would that, what would that appeal be? Well, uh, my appeal would be that uh, they, there's no reason why you can't build a happy life in Mormonism. Uh, its irrationalities are no more irrational than those of a Catholic or a or a, a Baptist, its irrationalities are no more irrational than those of an atheist. The, anybody that interprets 
the universe imposes an, something irrational on it. And uh, I think particularly if what I would say is what, what you have to learn how to do is pick and choose what kind of Mormon you will be. Uh, uh, there's a lot of security in the church. It's got a good social program if you know how to tap into it. Uh, it's full of decent people, and they're decent. it's good to be around them. Uh, particularly if the questioning person has spouse or children, I'd surely tell somebody, think hard before you break up a marriage over the mere fact of belief or disbelief. Uh, uh, I, I, I suppose a person has to at least negotiate the ability to take the church on his or her own terms. But by his or her own terms, I mean, uh, I don't, I think this idea that you've got to accept whatever job you're asked to take is a bad idea, a very bad idea. Uh, I think you have to, you need to, to cultivate a tactful way of telling the bishop you can't do that one. Uh, you shouldn't do that one. And uh, uh, take the assignments you want to take. Uh, but as far as exposing your children to it, well, why not? Uh, the the uh, it gives them a a security and a foundation and a, a, a decent society where you've got a better chance of they're not being exposed to drugs and drunkenness. Uh, the uh, so uh, I think I think there are a lot of reasons to to be a Mormon, and it doesn't require a deep conviction that it's the one and only true church. In fact, I think you're better off if you don't think it's the one and only true church, but uh, just adapt to people that do think. Uh, I think particularly people who were born and bred Mormon on it, think of staying. I have a hard time being having much interest in converting somebody to Mormonism that isn't already what there, unless it's what he or she particularly wants. Then, by all means, but uh, so that's where I stand on it. My uh, daughter is a Mormon. We raised her Mormon because. Uh, my wife said we should. She said, all the relatives you have, she'll have hell. She, Your wife said this, the yeah, non-member wife. Yeah, she said, considering all the, how strong all her cousins and grandma and grandmother and uncles and aunts are in the church, uh, we need to raise her Mormon. Hmm. And so while Karen was little, Althea went to church a lot. So a lot of people say to me, Oh, but if I raise my kids, they'll learn to not respect women as much as men. They'll they'll be barraged with this one true church thing. They'll get this arrogance about we're right and 99.95% of the world's population is wrong. And they say, why inflict that? That's abuse. You know, they'll say, that's abuse to inflict all these notions on a kid repeatedly. How would you give people some coping mechanisms for raising children in what you could say the dangerous waters of Mormon 
doctrine and theology for, for those who are liberal or concerned about those elements? Well, I suppose I just let the church do what it wants to do in Sunday school, primary, and just make sure that the atmosphere at home is uh, is open-minded and sees points of view. Karen uh, uh, is a an active Mormon. Your daughter. My daughter. Her two sons are, one son's a deacon now, the other son's getting close to baptismal age, and I'm sure he'll be baptized. Her husband's a, a Mormon. I, I baptized him myself, which may indicate something of the quality of Mormon he is, but uh, because he's never, he doesn't hold the, the ironic priesthood and uh, doesn't seem to be much inclined to. But it seems to me that the atmosphere at, at Karn's house is, uh, those boys aren't going to draw, grow up dogmatic, but they find a, they've got a pretty good society a network of friends. Um, and they certainly don't just fraternize exclusively with Mormons. The non-Mormons on the street that the oldest grandson is very good friends with. So, uh, we have I have uh, we have friends in Indiana who the the wife is a former Mormon. She may still be on the church rolls. I have no idea, but she has lived an absolutely non-Mormon life for these uh, fifty years or forty years, and uh, she. Uh, when we when we visit with them every couple of years for a weekend or so, uh, I'm an inveterate talker about Mormon affairs, and she gets back into it. And she'll say, "You know, it's it's refreshing to be back in the company of somebody that understands what it was to have a Mormon foundation." She says, "Most of our friends, we don't talk about what it's like to be a Mormon or what it was like." Uh, so that what that taught me is even the Mormon who goes apparently Gentile is still Mormon. And that's why I said that those nephews of mine that may identify more with their Baptist friends than with Mormons, they're down deep. They, they've got the sentiments and the the problems, they understand the problem of the problems of being a Mormon. You alluded to this earlier, but in your encouragement for, for disbelieving folks to maybe continue their, or consider continuing their Mormonism, I almost get a sense that there's a, a mission in your aspirations because you feel like maybe they're an important leavening influence on the church itself. Well, that big thing, the more liberal Mormons there are, the better. What's that? The, well, they influence the others to ease up on the throttle a little, the self-affliction throttle. Of, uh, that's why I told Richard Dutcher at the last Sunstone that you ought to stick with it. And he didn't have time to pursue that. And maybe he is, for all I know. I hope he does. But the reason is, is I think the more, the more uh, either doubtful or unbelieving Mormons who can stay in the church on friendly terms with other Mormons, the better off the church is in the long haul. 
The church is. The church. How's that? I think the church is shooting itself in the foot to think that going totally conservative uh, to the point of deciding you have to believe there was a Noah's flood, global flood, uh, it's damaging itself. I think the need, the need to affirm, the believer has such a strong need to affirm the faith that he, that he wants to he wants to get out into a region of unreality to keep it affirmed rather than realizing that faith has to be some kind of tension with everyday reality uh, rather than a system that lets you exclude everyday reality. And so liberals help well, I think so. I keep think, the church grounded and the membership right, grounded right. in reality. The, there's a reason why the church ought to liberalize in its attitude toward women. Whether, whether the church gives women the priesthood or not seems irrelevant to me if it would work out a system for extending more executive power to them. We need a lot more women in decision-making roles. And the church isn't civilized in its refusal to do that. Uh, I think it's to its own detriment, own long-term detriment. First of all, in the the loss of a lot of people, that uh, particularly women, particularly young women, uh, they uh, it takes quite a, a will to be like my daughter, who uh, I think is a liberal Mormon. Uh, but she's a very strong-minded woman, always has been. Even when she's a little girl, she commanded her father and mother considerably. But, uh, but I think she manages to let people know in her ward that she's one of them, but, but she thinks that, well, I, I, think, she, I think she feels like women, women ought to have more of a, decision-making role. Uh, I, uh, I'm well known over to my own ward, I guess, though I haven't been in the church for six months. It's this dialogue, between dialogue and my grandkids. I, I just haven't had time to go, but uh, when I'm through editing dialogue, I want to get back to sacrament meeting. I've known my bishop's my former home teaching companion, and uh, uh, he knows I edit dialogue. I give him copies of it from time to time, and, and uh, the, I, I finally got feeling comfortable enough in this gospel doctrine class up here that I could start saying what I think liberal Mormons ought to say in gospel doctrine classes, which I used to do down in Ogden regularly. Uh, I became. Uh, I lived in the 33rd ward of Ogden in the Ogden East Ogden Stake for for 35 years, and I'd become very much at home there. And they knew what kind of a guy I was. They knew I slept in sacrament meeting, and and uh, that I couldn't be depended on and f for church duties and so on. But uh, but uh, I was willing to raise my voice at the proper moment. If, if somebody's endorsing 
a global flood. The comfortable liberal Mormon says, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. You know that couldn't have happened. And besides, it's not against the scripture to interpret that as a local flood. Hmm. So he needs to say that. Yeah. It's almost an act of, you're almost calling on people to consider the act of service to help be a leavening influence in the right. church. So to close, um, would it be fair for someone to just say Levi Peterson is sort of non-religious, uh, secular disbeliever? Or is there a spiritual perspective that you feel like you still carry and, and operate with? And, and when that glorious day comes where you pass beyond, do you have hopes and thoughts in that realm as well? And, you know, those are, I guess, two separate questions, but I'll set you loose for your... Uh, well, first of all, I believe I'm religious <clears throat> because I feel reverence for the world around me. I became awake to that fact in in uh, wilderness, and I wrote quite a bit. Of, I've written quite a bit about wilderness, uh, but the primary thing wilderness taught me was that I I f f respond to the world with reverence, and to me, that's the essence of religion. Uh, I, uh, I'm hesitant to ascribe personality to nature, but uh, I would like to believe that, that the universe, nature, is moving in a direction that is in accordance with the deepest and most important human ethical values, which I hope are God's ethical values, uh, loving God through reverence, loving fellow creatures, uh, which seemed to me what Jesus was saying, love the, love the Lord thy God, and love your neighbor as yourself, and so on, uh, extended to all living things, which was the import of Albert Schweitzer on me to learn that picking up on his concept of reverence for life, that you expand the Christian ethic toward human beings to all living creatures, making judgments, recognizing you are making value judgments as you prioritize where you're going to put your, your efforts. <coughs> uh, I, uh, I'm a Christian by yearning because I was born into a Christian culture. I've studied Christian history a lot, the Christian tradition. I admire it. I, uh, I'm glad to belong to it. I, I'm not ashamed of it, but I don't exalt myself over my Hindu friend, Sesachari, in Ogden, my colleague at Weber State. You know, I always get together, we discuss religion, and it isn't with any <laughs> sense of saying one, one Christianity, Sesh points out the guilts of Christianity to me, and I point him out the, the Hindu version of the same. But uh, at any rate, uh, I don't mind being called a Christian, I don't mind being called a Mormon. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of my Mormon background. I uh, I'm, I have a lot of doubt. I haven't been blessed with a gift of faith. I don't know whether I'll uh, 
awaken into the miracle of eternal life, but if I do, I'll take it, you can bet. And uh, I do expect, by feeling that I know a lot about what God isn't, even if I don't know too much about what God is, I can't believe that if I do awaken into the miracle of eternal life that I will be arbitrarily denied seeing my loved ones there. Uh, that does not fit the God I know. Uh, it's possible that a group of human beings uh, would like to interpose between me and God and tell me that if I don't approach God in their particular way that I'm in trouble. But my sense of what God isn't, even if it isn't, if I don't have a strong sense of what God is, is that no, uh, that's not God. If people have loved each other in mortality, uh, God will, uh, they, uh, and they uh, arrive in immortal immortality together, they will be allowed to stay together. So that I, I'm not ill at ease about the prospects for my wife, as I've said, uh, that I think our, our love for each other is, is our temple ceremony. And as I say in a, a one of my essays, or one of the chapters of my book, and it, I, I feel that, that uh, holiness is found in many places. And I don't doubt the holiness of the temple and the experience of it that uh, happens to the, the attenders of it. But I'm also aware that, that I have felt holiness, and I know that it's holy. The essence of the holy in the presence of a newborn child and a death of a loved person uh, uh, in a beautiful landscape, um, in simply sitting with my family and my friends, that, that uh, holiness is where you find it. It's as unpreempted as the air. Uh, God doesn't sell it through a particular group of merchandisers. Uh, it's there to be taken. And I have taken it. I do take it. Uh, the, uh, I, uh, I have valued being alive and uh, don't regret living. Uh, it's been a good experience. Uh, regardless of what happens uh, after death, uh, the uh, uh, I, I I value my uh, the fact that so much of my life has been cast in with uh, with Mormonism. I'm very preoccupied with it, and that's all right. So. We done? I'm done. <laughs> All right.